Turn with me, if you would, in your Bibles to Daniel chapter 7. As we consider these verses in our continuing series through the book of Daniel. Once again, Daniel chapter 7, verses 9 through 14. I beheld till the thrones were cast down, and the Ancient of Days did sit, whose garment was white as snow, and the hair of his head like the pure wool. His throne was like the fiery flame, and his wheels as burning fire. A fiery stream issued and came forth from before him. Thousand, thousands ministered unto him, and ten thousand times ten thousand stood before him. The judgment was set, and the books were opened. And I beheld then because of the voice of the great words which the horn spake. I beheld even till the beast was slain, and his body destroyed and given to the burning flame. As concerning the rest of the beasts, they had their dominion taken away, yet their lives were prolonged for a season and a time. I saw in the night visions, and behold, one like the Son of Man came with the clouds of heaven and came to the Ancient of Days, and they brought him near before him. And there was given him dominion and glory and a kingdom that all people, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away, and his kingdom that which shall not be destroyed. Judgment seems like the one described here in Daniel chapter 7 are so very important for us to consider, to consider very seriously and not to pass by quickly, especially in an age like the age in which we live today who want to hear nothing about God as a righteous and just judge. A message of judgment, dear ones, is not easy to preach. It's not easy to hear. But it is very necessary to preach and is very necessary to hear as well. For our God abounds in infinite love and in infinite mercy. But God's word reveals that he is also absolutely holy and righteous and just. Interestingly, we as human beings, we want justice when it is that we ourselves or our loved ones have been injured in some way. We want justice, right? If our car is stolen, we want justice. We want someone to 
We want the authorities to, to find that car that was stolen and, and to deal with the thieves that stole it so that they don't continue to do so and so that there is uh, some accountability for having stolen the car in the first place. Or if we are ourselves are harmed, we want justice. We would consider it a travesty for a judge to set free one whom we witnessed brutally kill one of our loved ones. However, most people do not want God to be a just judge when it comes to their own sins committed against him. We want God to be a just judge when it comes to sins and crimes committed against us but not about our sins and crimes that are committed against God. This reveals our hypocrisy, does it not? God's justice, dear ones, as a righteous judge, must be applied to all sins without exception. His justice must be applied against all sins committed against him. Otherwise, we could not say that God was just. If he allowed any sin not to be dealt with justly, every sin must be dealt with by way of God's justice. Someone must pay for sins committed against the Lord. Either Jesus paid for those sins upon the cross, or the sinner himself or herself must pay for all eternity in hell. Justice must be served because God is a just judge. And if that's not the case, God ceases to be God because that's one of his attributes is that he is just in the crucifixion of Jesus Christ, God revealed both his justice and his mercy. You see, that's the glory of the cross. The glory of the cross, it's where God's justice and God's mercy kissed. It's where God showed that he's absolutely just and that all sin must be judged. And he put the sins of all of his people, all of those who would trust in him, and laid them upon Jesus and judged Jesus for all of those sins, every last one of them. And yet he shows to us, he judged Jesus, but yet he shows to us who trust in him mercy, his love, his grace. There ones we can only we can only truly adore God's mercy when we first truly adore God's justice. For what is there to be merciful about if God is not just? Does that not mean does 
mercy not mean that we deserve God's justice, but he does not pour that justice upon us, but rather pours that justice upon the Lord Jesus Christ? Without justice, there is no mercy. Let us then, as God's people, adore God's glorious justice as we behold his judgment upon these beastly, bestial kingdoms that are described here in Daniel chapter 7. Listen to what the saints in heaven are praising God for. Those who are already in heaven in Revelation 15, verses 3 through 4, what are they praising God for? And they sing the song of Moses, the servant of God, and the song of the Lamb, saying, Great and marvelous are thy works, Lord God Almighty. Just and true are thy ways, thou King of saints. Who shall not fear thee, O Lord, and glorify thy name? For thou only art holy. For all nations shall come before thee for thy judgments are made manifest. Our main points this Lord's Day are these from our text. First of all, God's judgment falls upon bestial kingdoms. Daniel 7, verses 9 through 12. And the second main point God's anointed king is given power over all bestial kingdoms in Daniel 7, verses 13 through 14. So let us consider our first main point, God's judgment falls upon bestial kingdoms. Verses 9 through 12, And I beheld till the thrones were cast down, and the Ancient of Days did sit, whose garment was white as snow, and the hair of his head like the pure wool. His throne was like the fiery flame, and his wheels as burning fire. A fiery stream issued and came forth from before him. Thousand, thousands ministered unto him, and ten thousand times ten thousand stood before him. The judgment was set, and the books were opened. I beheld them because of the voice of the great words which the horn spake. I beheld even till the beast was slain, and his body destroyed and given to the burning flame. As concerning the rest of the beast, They had their dominion taken away, yet their lives were prolonged for a season and a time. There's a continual theme, it seems, throughout the book of Daniel that we find in each and every chapter as we've read through, as we've preached through this book of the Bible And it is that our sovereign God raises nations up, raises leaders up, and he puts nations and leaders down. He's in control. He's sovereign. He's God. He's king. He calls nations to turn to him, 
and to worship him as the king of nations. In Jeremiah 10, 7, Jeremiah says on behalf of God, who would not fear thee, O king of nations? For to thee doth it appertain, for as much as among all the wise men of the nations and in all their kingdoms, there is none like unto thee. God is king of the nations. And as nations resist and rebel against God's goodness, as they resist and rebel against God's holy commandments, as nations persecute those who faithfully stand for the Lord God, God's righteous judgment will fall upon those nations and upon those rulers, as we see in the case of these four great and mighty empires that are spoken of here in this chapter. And if this is true of those nations, which again uh, was evident from what the Lord here describes as to the judgment that fell upon them, uh, it's certainly going to be true of our own nation. For we have even more benefits, I would submit. We have more benefits of God's mercy because we have the Bible. We have God's word to be able to look to to be instructed by. The Bible is still the most popular book printed. The Bible has found its way through the time of this nation into many, many homes. Granted that it is not now read, believed, trusted, loved as Perhaps it was more so at one time, particularly as our forefathers came from distant land uh, to plant uh, a civilization here that was based upon God's truth, God's word, God's gospel. And we've departed from that, for sure. But nevertheless, we are more accountable, not less accountable, as a nation, because we have more light and more understanding of the truth than ever did the four, these four empires that Daniel here had a vision concerning. As Daniel continues to behold this vision from the Lord, we see in this vision that there are symbols that the Lord gives of this heavenly court that's made ready to issue forth God's judgment, God's righteous judgment upon these four beastly nations that have rebelled against God. So let's examine the details of this heavenly courtroom that's that's symbolized here in the vision. In verse 9, 
Daniel 7, 9. We read, I beheld till the thrones were cast down. These thrones that are cast down, it most likely means that the thrones of ju judgment were cast into place. Uh, these thrones of ju judgment were set up. They were, they were erected. Not that they were cast down and destroyed, but they were set up and placed in a fitting place uh, for the judge and his assessors to be able to sit upon. And who was the judge? The Ancient of Days is here described likewise in verse 9, is the one who sits in the chief place of judgment upon his throne with the angelic hosts sitting in the other thrones as those who vindicate God's judgment and who go forth and carry out God's judgment against the nations. That term, that title, Ancient of Days, signifies God the Father. Not as being a creature who is limited to time, that is only old, that is only ancient, like these kingdoms are ancient kingdoms, but rather as the one who sits as judge over mankind from the very beginning of time, from ancient days, from the very beginning of time. He's the ancient of days, God the Father is. The ancient of days is also called, for example, in Isaiah 40, verse 28, the eternal God, the everlasting God. He was not created, but he's the one who created all things by the word of his power. God is described here in symbolic language, as in verse 9 as well, as having a garment white as snow and hair like pure wool. The white garment that's used here points to the absolute purity and to the absolute righteousness and justice of this judge. In Revelation 19, verse 8, the saints have white linen garments and there it describes the white linen garments. It says, for the white, for the fine linen it, uh, is the righteousness of the saints. And so the white garment that the Ancient of Days has here in symbol, in symbolic form, speaks of his righteousness, uh, his eternal, his absolute righteousness. This judge, the Ancient of Days, is one who cannot err in judgment. It's impossible for him to err in judgment. You know, our judgment is certainly often susceptible to error. We're not infallible. We are very fallible in our judgment. God is infallible in his judgment. He is, it is impossible for him to err. 
And that is why, dear ones, because we are fallible in our judgment, that is why we must be ever so careful not to act as God in our judgments of one another. We must be very, very careful. We can certainly exercise righteous judgment in being able to look at what others say or do and to judge according to God's commandments. The Lord says that we're not to judge with unrighteously, but we are to judge righteously. And that means, again, according to his commandments. Uh, likewise, we are to judge righteously by not uh, judging others without first judging ourselves. Taking out the, the beam out of our own eye before trying to remove the speck out of someone else's eye. Paul had many who judged him. Uh, not merely those from outside the church, but even those from within the church that judged him. In 1 Corinthians chapter 4, verses 3 through 5, he alludes to this. But with me, he says, it is a very small thing that I should be judged of you, he says to the Corinthian believers, that I should be judged of you, which implies he was being judged by the Corinthian believers. Apostle Paul was. Or, to be judged of man's judgment. Yea, and this is very, very important as we all consider when we are judged by others that we consider what Paul says here. He says, yea, I judge not my own self. In other words, I'm not perfect even in my judgment of my own self. I don't have God's absolute righteousness and justice to judge even my own self. He goes on to say, For I know nothing by myself, yet I am not here, hereby justified. He says, Even though I don't know that I have been condemned by something I've said or done, or by certain motives, intentions within my heart, though I do not judge myself, that doesn't necessarily excuse me because I don't have absolute justice and, and righteousness in judgment as God does. Therefore, what is his conclusion? Therefore, judge nothing before the time. Don't exercise an absolute judgment as if we are God don't exercise an absolute judgment. He says, therefore judge nothing before the time until the Lord comes, who both will bring to light the hidden things of darkness and will make manifest the counsels of the heart. And then shall every man have praise of God. Again, we need to be careful. We need to be careful in the judgments that we cast toward others. We cannot see hearts 
We cannot see intentions. We cannot see motives. God can see into the heart. We can certainly see behavior. We can hear words and we can say, according to God's word, that is wrong, whether it's our own or someone else's. But we must be ever careful, dear ones, that we do not think that we become God and exercise absolute final judgment. And that's certainly true even when others judge us. And that's going to happen. We're all going to face. Throughout our life, where others judge us, should we fall apart? Should we pull out our hair in a frenzy because others judge us? No. We leave that judgment with God. We say, I don't, we examine our own hearts. We examine ourselves, say, search me, as David says, and as he prays, search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my thoughts and see if there be any wicked way in me and lead me in the way everlasting. And if we do not see something that God convicts us of by way of having violated his law, again, uh, we can't, we can't um, at that point, um, seek forgiveness for something we do not believe we've done, but at the same time, Paul says, I don't even leave that final judgment to myself. I'm going to say, Lord, I commit it all to thee, ultimately, and to thy final judgment. To sort out all of these, these details that I can't sort out, I leave it all to the Lord. That's the only place of peace, dear ones. Otherwise, uh, we would be continually racked. Uh, we would be continually restless, lack of peace, um, going here and there, completely restless, if we could not commit all of these things unto God, who is a righteous judge. We see also his white hair, the ancient of days. His white hair points to the infinite wisdom of our God in applying his justice in the world at precisely the right time and in exactly the right circumstances. Now we may say, Lord, why did, why did you wait to apply your justice in that situation? But God is absolutely wise. He has symbolically white hair, which again speaks of his absolute wisdom. He always does things at exactly the right time, in exactly the right circumstances. We cannot question, we cannot question his wisdom. We must call into question our wisdom and our wisdom must conform to his wisdom, not vice versa. Old age, as evidenced by white or gray hair, is no longer associated in our day and age with wisdom, but rather it seems to be more associated with being old-fashioned, as being someone who now is irrelevant, that doesn't matter much, who we don't have to listen to. It's no longer the white-haired, the gray-haired is no longer honored, but is rather dishonored 
in our day and age. However, the Bible associates old age with wisdom, with experience, and with honor. In Leviticus 19.32, Thou shalt rise up before the hoary head, that is, again, before the white head, and honor the face of the old man, and fear thy God, I am the Lord. Honor him, honor her. Proverbs 16.31, The hoary head is a crown of glory if it be found in the way of righteousness. It's not just the fact that one has white hair that is an honor, but it, the one who has white hair and walks in the way of righteousness is to be honored. May the mind and wisdom of Christ in all humility be seen in us as there is more and more gray hair upon our heads. That does not mean, or that does not happen without going through many trials and learning through those many trials what it means to trust in Jesus and to learn from Jesus. in applying his wisdom in all the circumstances that we have faced in our lives. That's the only way. We don't uh, gain wisdom, dear ones, uh, as youth by simply falling out of heaven. It comes through experience. It comes through learning, through trials and tribulations learning how to apply God's truth through trusting in him in all of those temptations and trials that you have faced. That's how wisdom grows. If you pray for wisdom, you're not praying to avoid trials. If you pray for wisdom, which we ought to be praying for, you're praying that trials would come your way that you might learn how to apply God's truth to those situations. That's how you learn wisdom. And dear ones, always remember that no one wants to receive our wisdom if we're not practicing it ourselves. No one's interested in buying wisdom that we're selling if we ourselves do not treasure wisdom, the wisdom that comes from God. Note also in this vision that fire flowed forth like a river from God's throne in verses 9 and 10, where it says... <clears throat> His throne was like the fiery flame. And then verse 10, a fiery stream issued and came forth from before him. Fire in the Bible is a symbol of God's righteous judgment. 
in Deuteronomy chapter 9, verse 3, Moses tells the people of Israel, Understand therefore this day that the Lord thy God is he which goeth over before thee. Notice, as a consuming fire, he shall destroy them. That is the enemies of the people. He will destroy them. But he comes as a consuming fire that will judge, that will destroy. And so likewise here is this river of fire flows like lava, as it were, from the throne of God. This is a symbol of God's righteous judgment. To the, believer, uh, to the unbeliever, first of all, to the unbeliever, it is a river of fire that flows forth from God's throne. But on the other hand, to those who trust alone in Jesus Christ, it is a river of life that flows from the throne. Revelation 22, verse 1, And he showed me a pure river of water of life, clear as crystal, proceeding out of the throne of God and of the Lamb. Why isn't there fire coming in that particular image in Revelation 22, verse 1? Why is it living water that it's flowing? Because it's flowing to those who trust and believe in Jesus Christ. It's not God's judgment that is coming against God's people. It is the river of life that flows from the throne to God's people who trust him. Because Jesus has drank. He has been filled with the river of fire. He has drank the river of fire himself for his people. So that from the throne now flows living water unto us as people. It gives life, everlasting life, not everlasting judgment. God's throne also in this vision has symbolic wheels, wheels that turn the throne of judgment in any direction throughout the world where nations rebel against Christ and will not turn in faith to him and submit unto him as king of the nations. In verse 9, and that's what the wheels represent, that that throne can turn in any direction throughout the world, throughout the world to bestow his judgment, his righteous and just judgment upon nations that rebel against him. It's not fixed in one location simply to judge this nation, but to all nations that turn against him. And then we see in this vision countless angelic hosts that are present to carry out God's judgment throughout the world in verse 10. When it says, thousand thousands ministered unto him, and ten thousand times ten thousand stood before him. See, dear ones, there is no shortage of uh, angels to do the bidding of God in either saving his people or in judging his enemies. There's no, uh, there's no, um, 
there's not a few uh, angels. There's not a small number of angels. There are countless angels that he sends. And whether we realize it, whether we're aware of it or not, I dare say that his angels have protected us in many different situations that we faced. The fact that we are here today, I dare say, is because that God has sent his angels to preserve and to protect us. And the judgments that we see upon the, upon the nations today, God uses angels to stir up nations, to bring God's judgment against nations, to bring turmoil, to bring all banner of God's justice upon nations. And one more object is described in this symbolic heavenly courtroom. It says the books were opened in verse 10. The judgment was set and the books were opened. God does not need uh, books uh, to record all the ways that nations or of us as individuals break his holy law. Uh, God doesn't forget anything. Uh, God knows all things. Uh, God has never learned anything because God has always known everything. He knows all things from everlasting to everlasting. He knows all things immediately. He doesn't have to like we do. Now, what was it that uh, so-and-so said last week? Uh, or, or, you know, we have to go through this, and the older we get, the harder it gets. God doesn't do that. Everything is immediately. All things are immediately at his knowledge and understanding. His knowledge, is, his knowledge encompasses not only all things actual, but all things contingent, all things possible as well, immediately. Great or small, the most minute detail, God knows. The greatest, most, most uh, uh, difficult matter, uh, God knows. In fact, all knowledge that we have, which is puny, which is so small, is knowledge that God has given to us. So the mention of books here is not for God's benefit. God doesn't need books to, to, to take out to record what nations have done or not done or people have done or not done. Uh, it's for our benefit, not for God's benefit. These books, when they are opened, I dare say, uh, they are a terror. They are a terror to unbelievers. But they're not a terror to believers. Let me tell you why. Those books remind unbelievers that God will judge all their sins. Those opened books remind nations that God will judge all their hidden and all their visible sins. However, those books also reveal our sins, 
But beside each of those sins that we've committed, those books revealed paid in full, paid in full by Jesus Christ. Every one of those sins. That's why, again, there is no terror to the Christian, to the believer, when those books are opened. Because though those sins are revealed, they are all paid for by the Lord Jesus Christ. And if that is true, dear ones, if Jesus was, and he was, judged for our sins, then we, dear ones, cannot continue in them. We cannot continue in those sins as if it's no big deal that Jesus died for them. If Jesus died to set us free from those sins, to forgive us those sins, how can we continue to walk in them, not caring that, we're, that we are basically treating the sacrifice of Christ as worthless? We're simply accepting the sacrifice of Christ as fire insurance, simply deliver us from hell. But we care not about honoring Christ, living for Christ, because he has forgiven us our sins, all of our sins. You see, how we respond to our sins presently says much about our love for Christ and his sacrifice to forgive us of those very sins. Now Daniel sees in the vision God's judgment executed against these four bestial kingdoms. And those kingdoms of Babylon, Medo-Persia, Greece, and Rome. As Daniel continues looking there at this heavenly courtroom, he hears the voice of the little horn speaking great blasphemies against the Lord in verse 11. And be, I beheld then because of the voice of the great words which the horn spake. So he's, he's seen again this heavenly courtroom. Then he hears this, uh, the voice of these blasphemies that are being uttered by this little horn which we spoke of and was brought to our attention in Daniel 7, verse 8. This is the little horn, you recall, that arose among the ten horns in Daniel 7, 8. Those ten horns being the barbarian kingdoms that divided the united Roman Empire in Western Europe what is now Western Europe, in the 5th and 6th centuries. We noted that that little horn uh, is the papacy. It arose, and it's called little because it arose small in ecclesiastical and political power, but grew to declare great things about himself, as being God on earth, 
declaring blasphemies and great things about himself being the head of the church on earth, which again, Peter never claimed to be the head of the church on earth, uh, and yet uh, the, the papacy claims to be the successor of Peter and takes a title that Peter never took to himself. Jesus Christ alone is the head of the church. He's the only head spoken of in, in God's word. Blasphemies concerning papal infallibility that uh, the Pope, when speaking from his throne, uh, is incapable of error, infallibility. He cannot, it's impossible, that's what infallibility means, that it's impossible for him to err, which again, only God has infallibility. Only Jesus Christ cannot err. It's impossible to err. And yet, these are the great things that this little horn, as it, as it begins to develop, begins to speak, declaring himself to be universal ruler over all the earth as well. This little horn is actually parallel to the, in Revelation chapter 17, there in symbols we find a, a great a whore of Babylon that rides upon this Roman beast that has ten horns. And again, these are parallel one to another, the little horn and the woman. Just as in Revelation, there's the faithful church, the faithful bride, so there is the whore, the harlot, the unfaithful one who has perverted, who is unfaithful to the Lord Jesus Christ and his teaching. Again, this, this speaks as uh, the harlot speaks of the Roman church. Uh, this church in Revelation 17 uh, is uh, built upon, it says, uh, seven hills, the seven hills of Rome. And it says at the end of Revelation 17 that this church is placed in that city that rules over the whole earth, which was the city of Rome. And so again, this, this great harlot, I submit to you, is parallel to the little horn and the destruction, the destruction of both of them, as we will see, comes by fire. In Revelation chapter 17, uh, the, uh, the, the whore of Babylon uh, is destroyed by fire, as well as here, the beast with the ten horns and the little horn, they are as well destroyed by fire, by God's judgment. We see in verse 12, that there's a contrast with what is just said in verse 11. Whereas the, the beast, the fourth beast, that of Rome with the ten horns and the, and the little horn, 
it says, uh, are destroyed and given to the burning flame. In verse 12, we see that the three other beasts, that is the, the beast representing Babylon, the beast representing Medo-Persia, and the beast representing Greece, those kingdoms and empires, doesn't say that they were destroyed by fire. Rather, it says that their dominion was taken away, yet their lives were prolonged for a season and a time. So in those cases, those three previous beasts, they are conquered and they are absorbed into the conquering nation. Babylon was conquered and absorbed into Medo-Persia. Medo-Persia was conquered and absorbed into Greece. And Greece was conquered and absorbed into Rome. But this fourth kingdom is burned with fire. It ceases upon the destruction of God. It, it ceases to be a beast at all or to be absorbed in the kingdom that follows it, which is Christ's kingdom. The second main point, we'll go more quickly through this section, is God's anointed king is given power over all bestial kingdoms in verses 13 through 14. Daniel says, I saw in the night visions, and behold, one like the Son of Man came with the clouds of heaven and came to the Ancient of Days, and they brought him near before him. And there was given him dominion and glory and a kingdom that all people, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away, and his kingdom that which shall not be destroyed. Now the vision reveals that one like the Son of Man, Jesus Christ, appears, comes before the Ancient of Days, before God the Father, and receives from God the Father the authority to rule as king over all the nations of the world. This is really what we find by way of fulfillment in Psalm 2.8, there in that psalm, Jesus says, or the Father says to the Son, Ask of me, and I shall give thee the heathen, that is the nations, for thine inheritance and the uttermost parts of the earth for thy possession. When the title is used, Son of Man, uh, it doesn't mean that Jesus is less than a man. It means that Jesus has the nature of a man. And uh, that is true as a result of his incarnation. He is uh, the son of man. Uh, he became man. He assumed to himself a true human nature. Just as when Jesus likewise calls himself the, the son of God, doesn't mean that that title doesn't mean that he's less than God any more than son of man means that he's less than man. It means that he has the nature of man as the son of man and that as the son of God, he has the nature of God. 
And so here we see in the two titles that are used throughout the New Testament for Jesus, Son of Man and Son of God, speaks very clearly that he is fully God and he's fully man. Jesus is. It speaks of Jesus coming with the clouds of heaven. The clouds in scripture as in Psalm 104 verse 3 represent like a, a heavenly chariot of uh, for uh, God, carrying him about uh, to uh, the destination. Uh, again, this is symbolic, but uh, carrying uh, him about to destinations uh, by way of judgment, visitation for blessing, carrying him about uh, that from one location to the other. Obviously, God is omnipresent. He doesn't have to be carried about in a chariot. So this is, again, a... This is a, a metaphor, this is a figure of speech, a symbol. But in Psalm 104, verse 3, speaks of God, says, Who layeth the beams of his chambers in the waters, who maketh the clouds his chariot, who walketh upon the wings of the wind. And so these are symbols. To Jesus, King of Kings, is given here by the Father, everlasting and universal dominion to rule over all people and over all nations without exception. In Psalm 22, verses 27 through 28, this is prophesied and it will be realized at God's appointed time. All the ends of the world shall remember and turn unto the Lord and all the kindreds of the nations shall worship before thee for the kingdom is the Lord's, and he is governor among the nations. And then likewise in Revelation eleven fifteen, And the seventh angel sounded, and there were great voices in heaven, saying, The kingdoms of this world are become the kingdoms of our Lord and of his Christ, and he shall reign forever and ever. So the, the everlasting and un, universal dominion of Christ is here prophesied, to occur in this vision, who will conquer all nations, all bestial nations will submit unto Jesus Christ and they will become his kingdoms over which he rules. Just a couple questions. First of all, when will Jesus exercise this universal dominion over all people and nations that is here prophesied to occur? Well, at his ascension into heaven, that universal dominion was granted to Jesus as mediator, as king, by the Father. And we read in Ephesians chapter 1, verses 20 through 22, that all things have been put beneath. All authorities, all powers, all rulers have been put beneath the feet of Jesus Christ by the Father. That occurred when he, again, ascended into heaven and was seated and, uh, and received coronation as king over all the nations and king over his church. He is now king of kings. He's not going to become king of kings. He is now king of kings. According to 1 Timothy 6, 5, he's now, according to Revelation 1, 5, the prince of the kings of the earth. 
not he's going to become, he is now that. But he will exercise his royal authority in graciously converting and powerfully subduing all nations unto himself after the destruction of the little horn, after the destruction of the whore of Babylon, then he will exercise that power and dominion in a greater, something we have not yet seen, where all nations will be converted and, and subdued to his power after he has put down and burned that, that final beast that is spoken of here in Daniel. Where will Christ's throne be? Where will his throne be? Will it be in heaven or upon earth? Well, notice that here Jesus is not coming to earth to sit upon a throne. He's coming to heaven. He appears before God, before the Ancient of Days, in heaven, riding or coming with the clouds to the Father in heaven. His throne, according to Peter, in Acts chapter 2, when he ascended into heaven, God seated him at his right hand upon his throne in heaven. And there we find in Psalm 110, verse 1, that he will remain there upon that throne, ruling over all his enemies until every enemy is conquered. Every single enemy. And Paul says the last enemy, 1 Corinthians 15, that is to be conquered is death. So he will continue to reign from heaven over all the nations during that his millennial reign. He'll reign from heaven over all nations until death is conquered, until death, the last enemy, is conquered. We see even Satan is not conquered during because Satan is, is released from from the bottomless pit and is allowed to go forth and deceive the nations at the end of the millennium. And so we see that not all of Christ's enemies are conquered and death is certainly not conquered until after, until after the millennium at the final resurrection. That's where Christ's throne is and that's where his throne will continue to be in heaven, reigning over all the nations. As we close today, just by way of application, the fact that Jesus Christ reigns uh, supremely, the fact that no nation will be able to, uh, to resist him when he exercises his power and his dominion, no one will be able to to say, uh, we will not have this, this man to reign over us. They will all be graciously converted. They will all be powerfully subdued by the power of God to be nations that worship the Lord Jesus. And if he shall, dear ones, convert the nations, then what do we need fear about the nations today. If this is the power of our king, that he is able to subdue all nations, 
when it is his appointed time. We need not be panicked about what we see happening in the world around us. We need not be terrorized by what we see. We need to, again, realize that there's a purpose, there's a reason, and our God who loves us, our God who died, uh, uh, Jesus Christ who died for us, is our king, and he is the king of all nations. He is working out his purposes. And if he can take a hostile enemy like the Apostle Paul, or like Saul of Tarsus, and turn him into the Apostle Paul, then we need not fear any enemy. He was a great persecutor of the church at that time, and yet the Lord Jesus converted him subdued Paul to himself. So he's able to do with any leader uh, at this time. We need not fear. We trust in the Lord for Jesus is Lord. Jesus is Lord of all. And last application is this. It is because God is a righteous judge that we need a merciful Savior. If God wasn't a righteous judge, then we would not need a merciful Savior. But because he does punish all sin, we need Jesus. If we are to be rescued and saved from the wrath, the just wrath, the righteous judgment of God, we need a merciful Savior. That's why Jesus came was to bear God's righteous judgment for his beloved bride. The truth that God is indeed a righteous judge who will judge all sin, not some sin, not most sin, but who will judge all sin, need not torment you today if you trust him. You need not be tormented by the fact that God is a righteous judge and he's going to judge every single sin. It need not torment you if you trust in Jesus as the one who has borne that judgment for you. All of it for you. In the words of the Lord Jesus himself, John 5, 24, Verily, verily, I say unto you, he that heareth my word and believeth on him that sent me hath everlasting life, and shall not come into condemnation, but is passed from death unto life. Amen. Please stand with me in prayer. Our Heavenly Father, Thou art again a holy and a righteous judge. Lord, we would not be those who deny that in order to make ourselves feel better, to make ourselves able to do whatever pleases us, not caring what thou, the righteous judge, says. But Lord, we would honor thee as the righteous judge and we would flee to our merciful Savior who has borne that righteous judgment upon the cross for us. 
wherein the justice of God and the mercy of God have kissed. We ask our Lord that thou would even now send us to our Savior to find in him one who has swallowed the rivers of fire from thy throne and who issues forth from himself instead to us rivers of life forevermore. We ask, Lord, that thou would hear our prayers for Jesus' sake. Amen.